Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is God's word. Amen. If you love something, set it free. And if it returns, it is yours. Uh, I was thinking back this week the first time I remember hearing that, that phrase, if you love something, set it free. If it returns, it is yours. And I think, at least the impression I have in my mind is the first time I heard that was from this, this old sort of 1960s, you know, grainy kind of movie when you watched it on the screen about a married couple living in a, on, a, on a game farm in Kenya. And, you know, it's kind of cheesy, unrealistic, probably not what all you South Africans know as a game farm, I understand that. But, but the, this couple happens upon a dead lioness who, whose cubs are still alive, and they take the cubs, they raise them, they get rid of two of them, but there's one that's especially dear to their heart, they raise him further until, you know, he wreaks havoc in the villages and they set him free into the real wilderness, right? So, um, and they set him free, hoping, you know, maybe we love this, this cub, this now grown teenage lion, if we set him free, maybe he'll one day return. That movie, I remember I happened upon a, a bunny rabbit. Uh, I got a bunny rabbit. My parents let me keep this bunny rabbit. And uh, I loved this bunny. I loved it a lot. But over time, I sort of slacked off in, in and taking care of it. Something started to happen with it health-wise. I could tell this because the, the bunny rabbit started making a barking sound, um, which I, you know, I was old enough, I'd, I'd long past learned my animal sounds, and I realized a bunny doesn't go, woof, woof. And, and so I thought, something's wrong here, and it's got a lot of energy. And so we decided we're going to set this free. And I remember my mom, who was very fond of this phrase, said, you know what, Ryan, if you love this, and if you love this, set it free. Who knows? It could one day return, and then it's yours. And it never returned. So I don't blame it, frankly. I wasn't a very good owner. But it got me thinking, has anyone actually experienced this scenario of, of setting a creature free out of love, and then one day it returns. And so, as I was thinking about this, the, the person who came to mind for me is I have a, a niece who loves animals incredibly dearly. I mean, loves, the, loves animals to the point where, like, she loves bees. She actually, at the age of three, would go up to bees. Bees, not bumblebees, just, just the bees that sting. And she would pet bees. She would pet them. And pet them again. And she still pets them to this day. Many stings later, she still pets bees. This is how much she loves every one of God's creatures. So I thought, let's, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and ask her if, you know, she's ever said something free and it returned. So I asked my sister-in-law, could you ask her this question? She's delighted to. It was fun. They kind of got into it a little bit. Her initial response was no. I think ever returned. She thought about it for a second, changed her response, said, well, actually, maybe some toads. But then she thought, no, no, they're probably random toads that just returned. And their final answer was no. It's never happened. It's a wonderful idea, right? You love something, set it free. If it returns, it's yours. 
but it's not something we tend to actually experience in life. Except there's this great spiritual blessing that is real. We can't see it because it happened some time ago, but it is a reality of someone setting us free and doing so in such a way that would compel us to return. And that's Jesus' redemption of sinners like you and me. And my hope and prayer this morning is that we would behold anew the beautiful wisdom of Jesus' redemption of people like you and me. Maybe, maybe you've heard about this redemption before, and I hope you hear about it afresh this morning. Or maybe you've never heard about it before, and I hope you can behold its beauty and relevance to your life. I want to do this by asking two big questions. Number one, why is Jesus' redemption needed? Why is Jesus' redemption needed? And secondly, how does Jesus' redemption unite us? How does it unite us to God? Okay, so first, why is Jesus' redemption needed? And if you were in Sunday school this morning, there'd be two answers you might give. Why is Jesus' redemption needed? Jesus, you might say as a young child, but but that can't be it. His name's in the question. The other answer would be sin, (laughs) and that is the correct answer. Jesus' redemption is needed because of sin. Sin is a really big deal to God and a really big problem for us. And so the Bible uses a lot of different words for sin to get its point across about how serious it really is. One of these terms the Bible uses has to do with unrighteousness. That's something's wrong inside of us. Another one of these terms for sin has to do with evil. Like, like a real twisted, perverted, something's really wrong kind of evil. Another has to do with the idea of stepping over a boundary or trespassing. Like we see here in verse 7 of our passage, right? Forgive us our trespasses. Another idea has to do with lawlessness. You're someone who doesn't even care about the law. Still another has to do with unfaithfulness or betrayal. And I've already listed so many, you might start to think, why, why, Ryan, why are there so many words for sin in the Bible? Why don't the writers of the Bible just make kind of one term, define it simply so we just kind of get the idea? And I think, I think the reason is because the effects of sin are so serious, the Bible wants to use more than one idea. The Bible says that sin causes us to be blind, spiritually blind, spiritually lost, spiritually enslaved, spiritually dead. So if you're a doctor, right, or you're a nurse trying to revive someone, to resuscitate someone who is unconscious or they or they've, they've flatlined, what do you do? What do you do? I think you, you try everything, right? You use mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. You shock the heart with a defibrillator. I can never say that. Defibrillator. Use an intravenous injection of epinephrine. In other words, try any and every drastic measure to bring that person back to life, to revive them from unconsciousness. And and that's the helpless condition we find ourselves because of sin, even though we don't even know how bad that condition is. We tend not to recognize it. Jesus says the most important commandment is for us as God's creatures to love our Creator back with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And yet, over time, we begin to love other things and other people more than we love our Creator. And yet, we can't admit it. 
We can't actually say that out loud, sometimes because we can't see it. And if we can't see it, we're so ashamed, we want not to believe it. So you don't really hear people say that they love money, right? that they love security, they love pleasure, they love success, they love their own family, they love their own selves more than they love God. Oftentimes, we're blind to it. We're so enslaved to sin. So like an ER doctor, God, God uses every word picture he can to sort of shake us and wake us from this daze and say, look, can't you see what's happening to you? So God says, something is wrong on the inside of you. It's called sin. There, there's a, there are clear black and white standards that you've violated. That's called sin. There is someone you have personally betrayed. And that's called sin. Let me, let's, let's focus on that last picture for a moment. Pat's picture is in betrayal. The kind of no way to make up for it, no way to redeem yourself sort of betrayal towards a person. There's a vivid and really important story in the Bible about that kind of betrayal, but also about redemption. It's in the Old Testament. It's the book of Hosea. And we're not going to sort of go through that. I just want to kind of outline that story for you for a minute. Gomer is a wife who's been faithfully loved by her husband, Hosea, but she has other loves too. And her, her, her love for rival lovers, it grows stronger and stronger and stronger until eventually she betrays Hosea. She's unfaithful to him. God says to Hosea, I see what's happened. Now, go and love her again anyway. Go and love her again anyway, even as the Lord loves his children, though they turn to other gods. Try to imagine, if you would, being Hosea's brother or sister, a really good friend. You've seen what he's endured for many years. You've tried, you should tell him the guy, you shouldn't have married her in the first place, but he didn't listen. You've helped with her two kids as Hosea gets up, walks around town again, trying to find his wife, Gomer. You watch the kids for him. You've tried to be honest with him about setting boundaries and expectations. You've tried not to call him a fool and all other words you can think of, getting his attention. And one day, he comes knocking at your door. And he has a plan. He shares his plan with you. He says, I've got a new plan. I I know I'm going to get her back. Even though she actually now belongs to someone else, I'm going to give that person all my money and even all my barley all my food, and I'm going to bring her home and love her again. She'll be mine. What would you say to Hosea? What would you say to your brother? What would you say to your friend? You would say, this is enough, right? Bro, common sense says this is ridiculous. But common sense doesn't get the final word in this story. Redeeming love does. And so, You watch Hosea write down, so I bought her. I bought her back for 15 shekels of silver, a homer and a lekveth of barley. I bought her back. What God is doing through this real-life parable is trying to tell us something. He's trying to say, what am I to do with you, you sinners who I love? On the one hand, I hate the sin. I hate the betrayal. And yet... I love you, and I want you to live with me. I want you to be with me. And in fact, if you you read, that's just the first three chapters of Hosea I've summarized. If you read, 
the remaining 11 chapters of Hosea, they read like this, this inner debate in the mind of God. Where, on the one hand, you see God considering the despicable, despicable betrayal of, of rival to rival lovers by sinners by saying, I love other things more than you, God. And on the other hand, he, he, he wants to do what Hosea does, to buy his people back, to bring them to himself. That He says, that, how can I give you up? And so you see this back and forth. I encourage you sometimes, read Hosea 11 just for a little sample of this debate that God has in his mind. What does God do about this dilemma? What's he going to do about it? Here's where we get back to Ephesians. Paul tells us in Ephesians what God does about this inner debate, this dilemma, this back and forth. Paul tells us that God wants, he wants to unite us and all things to himself. He wants us back, and so he executes and makes known to us a long-conceived plan. It's a redemption plan. A redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful plan. I want to tell you more about it. So let's get to our second question. How does Jesus' redemption unite us? How then does Jesus and what He does bring us back to God so God can love us forever? And first thing I want to say is that Jesus' redemption, it's a beautiful plan, but it's also a multi-layered plan for all who trust him. And what's really cool here, guys, one of the things I've learned through studying this passage more is that as we peel back each layer of redemption, it gets more beautiful and more powerful what Jesus does for us. And I'm really excited to share this with you this morning. So we're going to see these three layers of redemption that are expressed in the New Testament. Three words the New Testament uses to talk about what Jesus has done for us through his redemption. I want to encourage us. You're going to see up on the screen some Greek words. I'm going to mention them. Don't worry so much about the Greek words. The Bible, the New Testament is written in Greek, and so there are going to be Greek words up there. Don't worry so much about those, but, but, but what it means, what each word means, what each layer means. So the first layer of redemption we're, we're told about in the New Testament, New Testament is ex agorazo. It's a word that means buy back. So Jesus redeems us. He buys back. We see this first layer of redemption in Hosea. Hosea buys back Gomer, and it costs him. First, he uses the cash he has on hand. And then when his cash runs out, he uses the food he has on hand, right? He uses everything at his disposal to buy back the one he loves. In other words, it costs him everything. In Ephesians, Paul says, Jesus' redemption is according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You see that there in our passage? It's been said that if a millionaire gives $100 to charity, he gives from his riches. He gives from his riches. But if a millionaire gives a million dollars to charity, he gives in accordance with his riches. You see the difference, right? One is giving a little bit out of a lot of what you have. It doesn't represent necessarily who you are being a millionaire. The other one represents the fact that you are invested. You are giving of yourself. And that's what God does for us in Jesus Christ. He could have blessed us God, infinite, powerful, omnipotent, almighty, blessed us with strength to endure. He could have just simply blessed us with a great family, 
many years to our lives or with wealth. But that for God would be like giving us a hundred bucks. The apostle Peter puts it this way. Here's how God gives according to his riches. First Peter 1, 18 through 19. For you know that it's not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And Paul agrees with this in verse 7, right? In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Because redemption cost God dearly, dearly by bleeding and dying, exchanging his life for ours, God gave in accordance with himself. He gave himself. Jesus' redemption cost him utterly. In a couple different ways, it cost him physically, it cost him relationally. Let's think about that for a moment. It cost Jesus physically. Just thinking about his destiny while he was still alive, caused Jesus to sweat blood in a rare but recognized condition called hematohydrosis. Jesus was in such anguish, he, he started to bleed already before the cross. Two more beatings he received before a trial from Pilate after which he was scourged, which involved a whip with numerous leather thongs on about two feet in length. And in these leather thongs were embedded glass and bits of metal and bone that the victim was hit with, whipped with. And you were whipped 40 times minus one to show mercy on that last one. Jesus, the cross itself was about 100 pounds. And the, the nails were about seven to nine inches long. They went through the largest nerve in the hand called the median nerve. Incredible pain. Feet nailed in such a way to keep the knees flexed at about 45 degrees, 45 degree angle. And the only way to keep breathing was to use your legs to push up. So you could keep breathing as long as your legs didn't tire. And there was a vicious cycle of, of increasing, uh, increasing oxygen demand coupled with an increasing heart rate such that death would come about either through suffocation or cardiac rupture. That's the cost that Jesus paid to redeem sinners, to buy them back. And that wasn't even the worst of it. The worst of it was relationally. You know, though even the word cross or crucified, it was reserved for, for, for criminals of the worst kind, murderers and traitors. The very word cross or crucified would was never spoken in public unless absolutely necessary for, because a culture, society, didn't even want to think about it. it. It would be like today, I would say it would be like a curse word that you'd say at a party, but, but now I wouldn't say that's true because people use curse words all the time, sadly. It would almost be saying like something at a party like rape. You imagine being amongst a group of people, having a few beverages, and you just start talking about rape. That's what it would be like to talk about the cross in this day. That's the sense we're supposed to get. So imagine the shock and horror when Jesus started talking about, not only talking about taking up his own cross, but asking others to do the same. And then he eventually would take it up the cross. 
All of his best friends flee. They desert him. They, they can't imagine anything worse than this for the one they love so much. So they run. His father deserts him also. Because Jesus bears the sin of the world upon his shoulders and that betrayal from everyone in the world is so reprehensible to God. The father turns his face away and he flees Jesus also. Jesus is utterly cut off in a way that I hope none of us ever experience because Jesus experienced hell on the cross. So we see that, that Jesus paid the ultimate price to bring us back to himself. Incredibly costly. And yet, redemption is even more rich, even more amazing than this. The second layer is this. It's peripoieo. It's another word used in the New Testament to talk about redemption. Peripoieo. It means to buy for oneself. So we have redemption means to buy back, but not just buy back, to buy for oneself. This layer of redemption that reveals motive, and we remember Hosea when we think about this. Hosea redeems Gomer, but he shows his motive for redeeming her. Look at Hosea 2, 2-3. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lecthef of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days, so you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. You see that? He buys her back because he wants to be with her. He wants to unite her to himself again. Now in this layer of redemption, God reveals his motives, right? He, he buys us back because he's a lover who wants us back for himself. It's incredible, right? That's beautiful. That's glorious. And yet, there's still one more layer of redemption to peel back. It's one thing to be sort of actually and legally belong to someone, united to someone. It's quite another thing to want to be with them, right? It's like a groom who marries his bride. My friends Alana, Jovan over here got married this weekend. Congratulations, guys. Now, it's one thing for them to be legally wed, right? It's quite another for the husband to woo her for the rest of her life. To give to her in such a way that she wants to keep being with him. That it's not just a legal thing, it's not just a tradition thing, but there is this inner desire to want to be with that person as the husband gives of himself to her. Right? That's what's supposed to happen. And such is the third layer of Jesus' redeeming love. The third layer, the last word used in the New Testament for redemption, lutrosis, and it means to buy back in order to set free. So we have, again, to review, buy back, to buy back for oneself. And then there's to buy in order to set free. Jesus pays the ultimate price. He does so to unite us to himself. But here's the amazing part. He secures that love, that want to in us by first freeing us. By releasing us. This is something we don't see in Hosea. It's something we don't see in the Old Testament. It's something we don't see in life because it's a strange and counterintuitive concept. It was for Paul's audience also. This word isn't used anywhere in the Old Testament when it's translated into Greek. 
And it's only used, this is phenomenal to me, this word was only used eight times in all other known Greek literature. Eight times. The Greeks wrote almost everything down. This word is incredibly rare, which makes sense because you, you, don't, you might buy things to resell them, maybe. Or you, you buy something that looks cool, you're going to put it on your shelf. Yeah, I guess. Every once in a while, you buy something because it's so precious to you, it's so dear to you, and you want it. You delight in it, so you buy it. You don't buy something you love to set it free, to let go of it. What if you never see it again? And yet, this is Paul's favorite word for Jesus' redemption. He uses it three times in this letter to the Ephesians alone. Three times. Apollo Lutrosis. You're redeemed. You're redeemed. He uses it here in our passage this morning. My boys and I, we've been watching this documentary on the American Civil War, which became, in the United States anyway, a war uh, over the, the cruel practice of slavery. One person owning another person. And it, it's, it, as we were watching this documentary, it, it never ceases to be heart-wrenching to hear tales of men, women, even children who are put on an auction block, inspected, often naked, and then bought and sold. It's awful condition to be in. Yet there, there's one story from the, that time period that got my attention. It stuck out to me. I suspect it always will. The story goes like this. There's a northern abolitionist who, who, that's a person who really wanted to free slaves and lived in the part of the United States that wanted slavery to be abolished. This northern abolitionist takes his life savings and he goes, travels south to a, to a slave auction. And he purchases a young slave girl. And after he purchased her, the story goes that as they walked away from the auction, the man turns to the girl he tells her, you are free. You are free. And of course, she's shocked and amazed. She responds, you mean I'm, I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want? He says, yes. To say whatever I want to say? She never experienced that before. He said, yes, you can say anything you want. To be whatever I want to be because I've only been a slave? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Even go wherever I go? And he smiled. He said, Yes. You're free to go wherever you want to go. She thought for a minute, considering her options, and looked back at him and said, then I will go with you. I will go with you. Coming back to this question, how does Jesus' redemption unite us to God? Redemption makes us want to be united with God. Makes us want to be with him. Sin happens when we love another thing or another person more than we love God. We almost can't tell it's happening, and we never admit it because we're naturally blind. We naturally can't tell. We're naturally enslaved to it. Jesus bled and died to purchase our release from sin. To purchase our our release from its guilt its power, and eventually its presence. He, he did so to be with us forever, yes, but he also purchased our release in the lover's hope that we would want to be with him forever. So we're legally with him forever by trusting in Jesus, 
but he did so in such a way to free us so that we want to be with him to ever, that that we would say, then I will go with you. I will go with you. No one loves me more. That's how God makes us want to unite to himself. There's a bonus to this, to redemption. Notice what Paul says the redemption plan will do in verse 10. He says it's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. It's interesting, he didn't say to unite all things simply to himself, although that's implied here, but unite all things in him. In other words, unite all things together through the redemption, the costly redemption of Jesus. Redemption, Jesus' redemption makes us want to release others too. We experience this this reality that we're free from all offense and betrayal to God, and it makes us want to release others too when they've sinned against us, when they've betrayed us, when they've hurt us. Because we've been freed. So we've been let go. And as we release others, as we remove any, any claim or hold over them, what does that do? People then want to be united with the person who frees them, with the person who says to them, you are free, you are under no obligation, I love you. I want to be with those kinds of people. And that's what redemption does too. It frees us to unite us to one another. So I hope you see this morning the beauty of Jesus' redemption. His redemption sets sinners free to forever draw us back to himself, the lover of our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this good plan, for this undeserved plan beautiful plan. Thank you for for the layers of love that we see and how you describe redemption, that you would lay down, Jesus, your life for us, that you would bleed to save us. And not just that layer, but you do it because you want to be with us. And the way you bring that about is by freeing us, by saying you are released, you are free. Thank you, God, for that freedom. Thank you for releasing us from bondage, from guilt, from pain. From, thanks for waking us up to the reality that the life of loving other things more than you isn't as good as a life of loving you. God, use that, that freedom in our life, that, that being released to make us want all of our days to say, then I will go with you. May that be the cry of our hearts because of what you've done in Jesus Christ. Help us go with you today by trusting in you, Jesus, our Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.